Let's go to Atif's case. My patient is a 61-year-old man who, in June 2006, was found to have a PSA of 6.1. The year before, it was 2.3. He had absolutely no urinary symptoms, and he underwent biopsies, and those showed poorly differentiated prostatic adenocarcinoma with 5 out of 12 biopsies positive in both lobes. A Gleason score in one of the biopsies was 9, 5 plus 4, and in the others, it was 8. He had MRI of the pelvis, and at that time, it revealed the physical exam was negative. The MRI revealed enlarged prostate, otherwise negative. As I said, he was completely asymptomatic. The only history he had that this patient is known to have a Crohn's disease for seven years and has had two surgeries on the abdomen. I truly do not know the exact nature of the two surgeries, but he had two surgeries on the abdomen. The last one was four years ago, and he is currently on six mercaptopurine to try to suppress, doing extremely well in regards to his Crohn's disease. What's his social situation? What kind of work does he do? He's a high school science teacher, very vocal guy. He's loved by hundreds of students here down in South Florida, and he talks too much in the school that he was actually asked to like leave the school. He has his own company of now tutoring high school students. He has taken people with you know, very low socioeconomic class to medical school single-handedly. He is the father of now a 12-year-old daughter. Unfortunately, his wife died five years ago from breast cancer, and I treated her at that time. And that's how I got to know him, actually, even socially. Therefore, he's a very strong-willed person. Hmm. What was it like for him when his wife was being treated? I mean, extreme devastation. I mean, the guy just got over it, truly, honestly, this year. And he called me first, and Atif, guess what? I thought he's going to tell me, because I know he was started dating a new woman recently, that he's going to get married. And he told me, no, I have prostate cancer. I'm coming to see you both socially and professionally. So, Judd, how would you be thinking this through? Well, it's a very moving case. Up until the Crohn's disease, uh, the Crohn's <laughs> disease adds a very interesting twist. Obviously, we're dealing with a young, you know, relatively young man of 61 who had a rapid rise in his PSA in the year prior to diagnosis, who now has poorly differentiated prostate cancer, clearly falls into the high-risk category. I assume the bone scan and CT are negative, and he has an MRI, which supposedly does not show any extra capsular extension. Faced a recent case like this at our institution, and I can tell you, at least our radiation oncologist, because of the Crohn's disease, would be very reluctant to apply a full-dose radiotherapy because of the risk of exacerbating the Crohn's disease. So... My guess is that if this guy were at our institution, he would be shifted towards me or one of my colleagues for radical prostatectomy. He's not going to be a candidate for a robotic prostatectomy, at least at our institution, because of the prior abdominal surgery. And I can tell you, I don't know how it is at other institutions, but just to talk about that for a minute, at our institution, we have a half dozen surgeons who do radical prostatectomy. About half of them do the robotics, about half of them do open, and we kind of draw the line still feel that an open radical prostatectomy is the gold standard for the high-risk individuals such as this. A couple reasons. In this guy, for sure, with the Crohn's disease and the prior abdominal surgery, robotic prostatectomy would not be offered at our place. Number two, I can have concerns about going transperitoneally in a high-risk individual. Again, there are a few places who are doing a purely extra or retroperitoneal robotic prostatectomy but most places are doing a transperitoneal 
surgery, insufflation, laparoscopy, you know, robotic assisted technique. And I personally think that we have no business exposing the peritoneal cavity, even though the prostate's put in a bag, to Gleason 9 prostate cancer with high volume. Some of my robotically trained gurus would disagree with that. But again, we're doing a cancer operation. Why not limit it to the retroperitoneal cavity if you can? Small, lower midline incision, stay out of the peritoneal cavity. In a guy with Crohn's disease, that's going to be one's most minimally invasive option to try to do an initial job at treating his cancer without making the Crohn's disease worse. So what happened? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the thought he went through. He saw three urologists here, two radiation oncologists. Then he went up to John Hopkins. He saw a radiation oncologist and a urologist. And then he went to George Washington because the dean of the medical school was a classmate of his. He decided to have the surgery at George Washington, which he did around three months ago. He did well after the surgery. I actually happened to be there visiting my daughter who goes to medical school there and visiting him. And he was like shaking with 104 fever, unfortunately, that same day, he, seven days after surgery, was diagnosed with intestinal perforation. Therefore, he had surgery. He stayed in the ICU at George Washington for around five weeks, and subsequently, he recovered completely. The pathology showed the Gleason score of nine in actually more than one biopsy. Huh. Margins negative. There was some seminal vesicle involvement, and 12 nodes were negative. The PSA two months after the surgery was undetectable. He recovered completely. He's back in South Florida now. He has resumed his normal life. I want to ask William about options at this point, but any comment on the perforation and the whole situation there, Judd? Interestingly, GW now is building their reputation on robotic prostatectomy. That's exactly true. And so did he actually have a robotic? No, he did not. He spoke to the person there, but because of the high chance that he was told it will be converted to open because of all the adhesions. Yes. Then he said, you know what? I just want one operation. Therefore, he had open process. Good. I know the guys are who do robotics, and I'm glad that they did not do a robotic in this case. And just by the grace of God, I have not faced a bowel perforation like this in a patient, but it can happen. And that's why you need to counsel patients properly. So, William, what would you be thinking about in this man at this point, both on study and off study? Up until the Crohn's, you know, one would have thought that he had a very, very high likelihood of micrometastatic disease. We know that rapid rise in PSA is an independent predictor of systemic recurrence, as is now the seminal vesicle involvement pathologically and, of course, the Gleason 9 cancer. So if he didn't have Crohn's, I think most of us would have agreed that he was at such high risk of metastatic disease that radiation with hormones would have been a reasonable choice. There's no evidence that he should get any adjuvant radiotherapy. He's not the kind of person who would benefit from it, even if you could deliver radiation safely. The issue is whether to use hormones and or chemotherapy in this setting. There is still no evidence that adjuvant hormonal therapy has any value in this disease in this setting, even though he's at very high risk. And that's because it's just never been studied with standard LHRH agonists. As you know, there's a very large study that looked at high-dose bicalutamide versus placebo in this type of setting done across three different continents, but it's not conclusive that adjuvant hormonal therapy in a high-risk patient like this has any clear benefit in terms of survival or progression-free survival. So I would not normally routinely use NLHRH agonist. I think we have the advantage of having PSA tests to follow a patient such as this very, very closely. 
The other area is chemotherapy. And of course, we know that although hormones can control disease, they're never curative or they're rarely curative in this type of patient if he relapses. So there's a lot of effort looking at, for example, adjuvant chemotherapy. TAX-3501 is a randomized clinical trial with three arms for patients post-prostatectomy with very high-risk features like this. They're randomized to either observation, hormonal therapy for a year and a half, or hormonal therapy for a year and a half plus six cycles of chemotherapy with docetaxel. And in the control arm, the observation arm, when they relapse, if the patients relapse, they're then subsequently randomized to salvage hormones or salvage hormones plus chemo. It's a very good trial. It's a very important trial. And this patient could be randomized to that study, actually, if he was motivated to. And I think it would be a very good thing to offer him if that was available. Outside of that setting, I do talk with some of my patients about kind of what TAX-3501 is trying to accomplish, what chemotherapy is, and why people are looking at it in the setting. But routinely, I wouldn't offer to a patient like this outside of a clinical trial, particularly because we just don't know what the overall benefit is. Routinely, you would not offer me that maybe in some situations you would? There are people, I think, who, and this man seems like it, a science teacher who's very well-connected, very intelligent, where they will come to me and say, you know, is it not wrong to wait? Why not just use it now? That's what we do in breast cancer. That's what we do in colon cancer. And in fact, outside of available clinical trials, if we don't have a trial available at our institution, I have offered it to some of those patients. But it really takes an extremely intelligent person who understands what the risks versus benefits are. Because in the end, without evidence, I can't quantify the benefit for them. I can only say that these are theoretical benefits. I can't give them a percentage chance, for example, of delaying progression or improving survival. The first few people I used this off-protocol adjuvant chemotherapy in were all physicians because they were the ones reading about it and they were the ones motivated to try, and I felt that I could safely do that. But I think in selected patients, it's something that you certainly could bring up with him. But many patients, they don't want to hear about chemo, again, partly because of maybe the misperception of how bad chemo is versus what they think it is. But I think it's certainly if he's very interested in trying to be as aggressive as possible, it's not wrong to discuss it with him. I'm always interested about how randomized trials appear to patients and physicians. You know, we talked about this study looking at docetaxel alone with bevacizumab. Yes, there's a difference, but we said quality of life, not much difference. Here you're looking at a randomization. On one end, no treatment. On the other end, both hormone therapy and chemotherapy. How do patients react to that? There is a concept in clinical trial design called equipoise. Have you designed a trial that does not compromise the safety of the patient participating? And I think this trial meets that, but there's a second issue that doesn't come up in the concept of equipoise, and that's perception. To the patient, are the arms balanced enough that they feel that it's worth enrolling? And I think the docetaxel bevacizumab is a very good example. It's very possible that this patient being treated with docetaxel, that earlier patient we heard about, is just getting docetaxel and doing just fine. He's getting what he would have gotten anyway. In this setting, I think you could make the same argument because the choices include each of those three arms. But I think you're absolutely right that the patients perceive something different, which is the randomization drives them nuts. They do not like, if they're going to make a decision to observe, that's their decision and your decision as their physician. If they're going to do the kitchen sink approach of hormones and radiation, that's their decision and your decision. They do not like to be told that. 
And so that's unfortunately what has made accrual to the study difficult. But it is the right way to get the answer. So as investigators, wear hats as investigators, we wear hats as clinicians. We don't want to be having this discussion 10 years from now. The breast cancer people have shown us that you don't move the field forward unless you get people onto these trials. So I have to advocate for enrollment onto trials like this, but it's not always an option for all of our patients. So can you follow up with the patient? What yeah, happened? I actually forgot to say that he received, while getting those half a dozen opinions, he was started on Lupron monthly for four months. Didn't really like it. I mean, the guy is working on this new relationship he is having, and we spoke to him about that study. And he really did not want, he felt very comfortable with the number being zero, that we are going to follow it very closely. And he just wants to live his life for now because he just, as I said, really recovered over his wife dying. Mm. Dr. Denis? You know, I realize it's still fairly controversial, but some of the patients that we've heard about, and Dr. Moll may have a different viewpoint on this, but particularly like in this gentleman with the Crohn's who's at high risk for already having metastatic or micrometastatic disease, at least a consideration of some of the guys that are really talented, you know, in doing some of the cryosurgery. Again, if you have some capsular involvement, you can drive the ice out through that. It takes a lot of experience. It's not just for somebody you can just do one or two of them. Not that certainly a bowel injury couldn't happen, you know, in that setting as well. And historically, or 15 years ago, they certainly did. But we haven't talked much about that here today. But I think in some of these more complex cases, I believe that those are options that at least should be discussed with the patient as an option. They may not be part of our prostate guidelines per se for different reasons, but I think that they are legitimate options. Judd? So I'm glad you brought that up. For the urologists who are going to be listening to this, this issue of cryotherapy is a hot topic right now. And the reason it's a hot topic is because the American Urologic Association just came out with their latest new practice guidelines for T1, T2 prostate cancer, and cryotherapy kind of got the short end of the stick. And in AUA's defense, they did a very compulsive literature search, and the current body of literature on cryotherapy was not as robust as what we have for radiotherapy, brachytherapy, or radical prostatectomy. So in the winnowing process, and the contractors who did this, the cryotherapy literature got put in a lower category. And so when these guidelines came out, a lot of the cryotherapists in this country or urologists who do cryotherapy are upset that the guidelines did not put cryotherapy in a high enough light. So what the AUA has done in response is basically formed a separate task force to relook at the literature and in fairness try to look at this again. And by the same token, the manufacturers who are making the cryotherapy companies have met with the AUA and have made a commitment to try to improve their literature and to try to get the investigators who are doing cryotherapy to look at it. The problem is it's very difficult to separate out efficacy of cryotherapy alone versus cryotherapy plus hormonal therapy. And also, much of the literature really didn't specify clearly that these were only T1, T2 patients versus T3 patients. Having said all that, I agree with you. I mean, in selected cases like this, it should be an option. Interestingly, in the Crohn's case that I had, I sent him to Tom Palasik, who's my guy at Duke, who's the cryotherapy guru. And he kind of was a little, even though he didn't know for sure, he was a little bit gun shy on doing cryo on a guy with Crohn's because he wasn't certain if that could exacerbate the Crohn's. But honestly, I'm not sure why that would be much different than doing a radical prostatectomy. 
I think as we get better going forward with disease localization, the minimalists will somehow prevail, whether it be through needle ablation and delivering just a few seeds to one spot and boosting just that little area with some sort of IGRT that can focus on one little area, a couple of maybe one centimeter in diameter in the prostate, or we deliver some sort of uh, freezing technology or cooking technology, whatever it is. I see a paradigm shift in the way we view the nature of prostate cancer, where there are people with these grade 8, 9s, and 10s that we've talked about today that have a difficult go of it, but we are picking up more and more so much earlier on on the timeline of prostate cancer that I think an awful lot of us have begun to think about it more as a chronic illness, something to be managed over 15, 20, 25 years, and therefore to be a heck of a lot less invasive about it. When we do things such as the focal cryo, not only do we end up sparing the nerves, but a lot of the men are able to go home and ejaculate. And although that's not a huge thing that we've talked about, to that individual man, it might be a big deal. And I think we'll see ourselves continuing to improve lethal delivery of whatever the modality is with less and less side effects. Dr. Pizzolatto. Is there anything known about the long-term side effects of the radiotherapy modalities, especially as radiotherapy moves to younger and younger patients? I think it's a legitimate question. I mean, we know as men are living into their 80s and 90s and men are diagnosed in their 40s and 50s that the experience in other disease states like Hodgkin's disease, testicular cancer, is that some forms of radiation may have the possibility of having a long latency before developing second cancers. I think that is one of the drivers, not that we know that it is or is not that way because radiotherapy delivery is so much better than it was 20, 30 years ago, but we know that because of that theoretical risk, a 45-year-old man might be favored not to have a seed implant or external beam for that reason alone. It's a bias that I have as a medical oncologist that we don't know that he might not get a bladder cancer or rectal cancer you know, in his 70s from the treatment that we'd cured, especially if it's a very small cancer. So I think in general, when we look at these age ranges for why people get therapies at different ages, I think that's why surgery continues to be, I think, the favored modality in younger men with prostate cancer. And just to comment on that, about a year ago, there was a paper that came out in the gastroenterology literature and basically suggested that there was a doubling of the rate of rectal cancer, what, 15, 20 years after radiotherapy for prostate cancer. Well, the good news, bad news, the bad news is it was a doubling of the rate, but the absolute rate of increased rectal cancer was still very small. So in fairness, I've often wrestled with myself, how do I articulate that to fairly as a patient? Again, I'm a surgeon. I'll admit that I have a bias toward surgical therapy, but by the same token, I work in the team with radiation oncologists and medical oncologists, and I don't want to diss their therapy unfairly and ding patients based on that too heavily. So I have trouble in my own practice trying to figure out how to put that in perspective. 